I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Ruler podcast. My name's Jack Thurston, and this is the podcast for issue 51 of Ruler magazine. And round the table here at the Ruler offices are editor of the magazine Ian Cleverly and assistant editor Andy McGrath. Hello, Jack. Hello, Jack. Hello, gents. Fantastic issue, this one. And you must note that I don't always say that in the podcast. Doesn't mean that I don't always like the other issues, but this one is the one that I really feel like I can say this is one of the great, great issues. Very good of you to say so. No, I don't ever remember you saying anything like it before, frankly. (laughs) We'll take that. There's a lot of variety in it. And some amazing photographs, of course. And that's where we start in the podcast, isn't it? Picking out our favourite photographs from from this issue. Um, do you want to go first, Ian? Um, there is a shot of Lance Armstrong on a scooter pacing TJ Van Garderen. And he has this look on his face that says it's the most serious task in the world. It's just a beautiful shot by, um, by Jacob and... Uh, that's my, that's my pick. He looks so ridiculous. Uh, that's the thing. He's got a baseball cap on backwards and he's on this Vespa. It, you can tell he's retired, basically. It looks really silly. But that's not my favourite. My favourite is one of Antonio Bigarini's from the Berlin Sixth Day. It's of a bear, a man in a bear suit, actually. It's one of four, four photos on the page and it really sums up the spectacle and the silliness of Six Days and kind of still ties it back to its past which is what the article's about so I absolutely love that Have you been to a lot of six day races yourself? Confession time I've never been to a six day race not even one day of it Ian? Uh, I went to the Skull Six back in the, back in the day at uh, Empire Pool um, which was uh, well yeah fabulous but it, yeah it is, it, is, it is show business you know yeah. let's, let's, let's make no, no, bone, no bones about it it's not uh, it's not serious racing, but really, yeah, I think so. Throughout, it doesn't matter yeah. though. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's a spectacle. I mean, the photographs of the Berlin Six are breathtaking. Should there be a six-day race in Britain? Possibly, there's there's time for it. I think there may have even been discussions about one in the near future in the UK. Certainly, if not now, then when? Because surely it's the best time. But then the other kind of issue is: can you hold people's attentions for six days, and can you get the stars to? turn up and race hard for six days. You will if you pay them enough. If you pay them enough, yeah. Because Ruler's been involved in the Revolution series, which has been a kind of innovation in track racing, but you'd put that in a very different category from, from six-day racing, would you? 
Yeah, I think so. It, it, it's it, well, I suppose it's a similar thing. It's just that it's spread out over over the whole winter. So so there's not. And is that real racing? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, uh, of course it is. <laughs> moving, moving swiftly on to my uh, photo choice, which is. I, I don't know if this is going to be yours, Ian, but it is the photograph, double page spread of Lars van der Haar leaping on his bicycle over um, a ravine on a, a cycle, cyclocross course, which I think, I mean, it's just a very arresting photograph. And the thing that I like about it is that it's almost, it's like a raw sketch test for do you like cyclocross or not? Because mm-hmm. the, the people who love cyclocross will go, God, yeah, look at this, this is amazing cyclocross that's what it's all about people who don't like cyclocross will go look what a ridiculous thing he's doing you know what's he doing on a road bike in the mud leaping over a ravine you know so you you could take it either way either it's a ridiculous muddy circus or it's poetry in motion well that's that's a perfect description of it isn't it It, but uh, i think roadies that can't do that are just jealous frankly you know they'd like to be able to do it well we'll come to we'll come to our cyclocross debate later in the podcast but let's start let's start with lance lance is the opening story in the magazine um why why not i mean but basically morton sent me an email and says uh yeah i'm gonna go i'm gonna see if i can get lance and i just replied yeah whatever um good luck with that and then he came back about two days later and said yeah i've got him we're going to aspen and um and uh, morton and Jacob had this amazing ability to just get into people's lives and 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 make themselves at home um which i don't know how they do it but but with any with anybody else i swear lance would open the front door and go oh it's a journalist great come in sit down we'll talk for half an hour with them he opens the door and goes f me it's the blues brothers and you know because they're standing there dressed in suits and you know he just welcomes them in and says just make yourself at home and and then they end up spending like two or three days there I think they've got under Armstrong's guard partly from the amount of time they spent with him but I don't think it's such a PR offensive because it is much more relaxed and they are kind of having fun isn't that part of the isn't that part of the Lance game isn't Ruler being played by Lance like Uh, a fine violin I I I I I think so you think you are being played oh yeah he plays everyone doesn't he (laughs) But that doesn't matter. I don't think so. It's we're just... playing the player a bit as well, though. I feel because we're because they're not unknowing. I mean, all the time they're making allusions in the article to. I like when uh, Armstrong suggests some some things to improve modern cycling. They don't genuinely think he's a savior of modern cycling. They know how ridiculous the whole scenario is. Just being there and some of the things he's saying. Mm. So it's a bit of that. As well. Does Does Lance matter in cycling now and in the future? Mm. Yes. Firstly, because you've got to learn from from Lance, learn the lessons of. Because I've just been writing something about this for the website, and it's it's not so much about Lance as a whole kind of culture. And at a certain time, there's going to be another champion who possibly gets caught, and then people are going to ask, "What I'll be doing to stop this? What's changed since Lance that I revelate, uh, Lance revelations, and what good is going to come from exposing Lance?" So I think he still matters. I'm less inclined to think he does matter. What I do think 
to a large degree is is how he has become you know the whipping boy for everything that's wrong in cycling and is expunged from the Tour de France records while nobody else is which just seems to me quite ridiculous um so does he matter in in the modern day cycling in the great scheme of things no probably not but does he matter historically then yes he matters because he was a champion yeah yeah same as the rest of them <laughs> yeah so you would uh, you would see it being a bit ridiculous that he's um expunged from from the history books and totally. the rest aren't it's, and yeah. you you'd go along with his uh accusation of hypocrisy yeah yeah i do totally you seen remember a podcast a while back and 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 uh you were talking to guy and guy said Look, this i've got a sort of you know a view on lance that isn't very popular is that is that lance actually made cycling hugely popular and we've got a lot to thank him for <laughs> i think the rest of us sort of sat there were kind of going "Ooh, you know but um mm. well you know isn't he right and so ruler has been among those and the leading media organizations i suppose to to promote and celebrate marco pantani and in the piece lance says you know what's going on there you know how come it's the great marco pantani mm. and i'm the number one pantomime villain we've got all the ruler mugs over there with all the different <laughs> riders on them done by richard mitchelson will there be a will there be a lance that's mug? a good question that's a good question Actually, i just saw richard mitchelson's mug at the or his face I should say at the door um, waving through but um, I'm not sure that's a, a route he'd prefer to go down but um, I mean, they, they, this is uh, something that comes up every so often it, it is, people will say so they've gone after him why, why haven't they gone after such and such you know this other rider well because that guy treated us well you know that, that guy sort of just didn't just kept his counsel and didn't actually make us feel like didn't we make were, any. Didn't make any enemies. Didn't make any enemies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that's that's the difference, I think. You know, and that's that's why. Mm. Uh, but that suggests, that's why Lance has got hammered because he did make a lot of enemies. But that suggests that our process for making moral judgments about people is not about whether they cheat at their sport. It's about whether they treat other people badly. Mm. Mm. Which is, I don't know. It doesn't feel satisfactory. Cycling is a professional sport. As long as it remains a professional sport, there will be cheating. Same as any other professional sport. And it's as simple as that. So, any profession, yeah. I'd go as far as saying, not just sport. There's, you know, banking, journalism, whatever. People will try to find a shortcut. They'll plagiarise, for example, in journalism where they can occasionally if they want to. But going back to Pantani and the hypocrisy, it's a lot of it is the projection of personality when they're riding, either by the rider or by the media. And Pantani, just taking that example, he was seen as childlike and, and endearing, a hero. And Armstrong didn't have any of those qualities. He was abhorrent. He was a bully. And that's where a lot of the problem lies. It's a simple thing of how a fan sees that, that champion. So when people talk about new generations in cycling, we should just put that to one side as a, as, as a kind of wishful thinking. I mean, it's really fascinating, isn't it, to see TJ Van Garderen training with Lance Armstrong. I mean, is that not going to create a few ripples when those well, pictures come out into the internet? <laughs> well, that, that, internet? Was, that, was, that was quite amazing for us. And I, I think... We didn't expect did we? We didn't know they were doing that until the photos came out. No, I, I think there's a slightly different take on it in the States. I don't think the States... The, the Americans seem to be as 
horrified by the whole scenario as we are. But a new generation uh, doesn't mean a kind of new start. I think you can't draw a line in the sand. Uh, what we're looking at is a culture of, of doping and pro-cycling for, since the start, pretty much, with strychnine and all that. I know what they were on, so you just have to hope it'll improve slowly. That's a realistic way of looking at it, I think. And so one of the ideas that Lance Armstrong has in the uh, the end of the um, of this piece, which is just the first part of a two-part, second part will be in issue 52, is that um, the sport is in a terrible state in terms of the way it's organised, the way the revenue is shared between the organisers, the teams and the riders. And um, he recommends something which is actually quite a lot like what Jonathan Vorters is recommending, is that there's more of a revenue share from TV, TV revenue with the teams but Lance is also arguing that the riders should have more of a personal stake in the business somehow principally I guess in the form of a riders union that they have to pay a subscription to Um, and he thought that if they have a stake in future sponsorship income they will realize that um, things that are likely to tarnish the reputation of the sport and put off sponsors. So, for instance, look at Germany, the biggest market potentially for cycling mm. um, on TV in, in, in Europe, you know, completely ditched professional road racing in the wake of the sort of do- doping revelations, I suppose, t- uh, with the telecom T-Mobile teams. And they would go, well, look, we, we, uh, we don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Um, do you buy that? Do you think that that, that kind of rider union and, and a, a rider's having a stake in the TV money directly and a feeling like they have some equity in the system, do you think that's going to make the difference that Lance argues that it will or is he just being over-optimistic? Mm, I, it, it sounds like a hell of a big ask to me, but it, you know, it's, it's all very well to to sit there and spout his ideas when you're not actually involved in it and you're not going to say anything. Um, I'd be more interested to sort of Read what Vouchers had to say on the mm. on the subject because he's somebody that actually could have some have some sway in that. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, I mean, what what Lance effectively says is is if I'm not mistaken in the piece is like we know the guys who are on it basically. Yes, that's so, what I thought. Yeah, that was yeah. interesting, wasn't it? He, he, we know who's on it, so we can out them ourselves. If it pays us more money to out people than to yeah cover them up yeah. then rides will do it which I guess is you know it's the mercenary <laughs> nature of being a professional road racer is yeah. that if you can change the incentives in some way that, that they can be incentivized. that's I mean that's you know that's the only language that people understand isn't it it's money yeah and you look at the, the other end of the spectrum is at the other end of the magazine is is, is Colin's story on, on the Yellow Fluo team is you've got a small Italian team not a lot of money always scrabbling around for for sponsors and they have three riders who test positive <laughs> and that puts the jobs of 50 other people maybe in jeopardy what those three guys have done and that's that's you kind of got, got to wonder how they feel about that assuming that they were just freelancing on their on the EPO they weren't it wasn't part of a team program yeah I mean, I don't know. No, no. I'm, I don't no, think Colin really comes to a conclusion on that. I mean, he does seem to. He does seem to like the team uh, uh, owner, um, or the, or the at least the, um, the the sporting director, yeah, um, and trusts them and thinks that they are freelancing. But that you know that does tend to be the the, the line that comes out, doesn't it? With Astana, oh well, God, they've just been off, gone off and been naughty. We told them not to, says 
Alexander Vinokurov. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was ever thus, yeah, I, I guess. So I don't know. You have, you mm, have to draw mm, your own conclusions, yeah, don't you? Yeah. Right. Let's move on. Let's move on to um, to a climb in the uh, in the Alps. Um, a climb that's very celebrated in, in in cycling history. Andy, this is your piece, um, illustrated with some fantastic black and white photographs. Tell us a bit about the climb of the Col d'Isoard. Yeah, okay. It's a. Uh, it's been in the Tour de France since 1922, I think. It's a Horcatory climb from both sides. The famous side of the climb is the south side from Giestra to the top. I think it's about 14 kilometers at eight percent, and it's brutal. It it really is tough. The funny thing with the Isoard is that um, it has never hosted a summit finish, and it probably never will. I think mainly for space reasons. It's just a medium-sized car park and a sweet vendor at the top. There's no place to fit the Tour Circus, um, which is a real shame because it, it is a, a very tough climb and it is one of the most uh, kind of arrestingly beautiful climbs in the Alps. I mean, I can only compare it, both the uh, Vista on the summit and the Castezert, maybe the Galibier. You really feel like you're out of civilization. You feel, you feel a bit lonely if you want to go really deep. <laughs> And actually, it's not mentioned in the piece, obviously, but I got vertigo for the first time on a goat track about 100 metres above the summit where Paolo was taking some of the photos that appear in the article. And I got I got a bit scared. I was kind of like, I haven't eaten in about seven hours. I'm getting tired. I don't want to put <laughs> a foot wrong and fall off the mountain. Yeah. So it does funny things to men and cyclists in races. And and what are some of the great um, exploits that have, that have taken place on its slopes? Uh, well, the Isoard was the big daddy of the tour in the 50s and 60s. Uh, really, it was uh, Fausto Coppi and Gino Bartoli who, who raised a profile in 1949, I think it was, when Coppi and Bartoli went over top together. Bartoli implored Coppi to stay with him because it was his 35th birthday and let him win in Briançon, which is the traditional finish of the uh, Isoard stage. And the next day, the tour would be Coppi's. And so it was. And just constantly over the next 10 years, there were good battles. Uh, Louis Bobet sealed his first Tour de France victory with a, a fine solo in the Alps uh, and went um, alone over the Isoard. And he did it the next year too. And that's how it was built, as well as with the media, actually, like kind of with with the imposing photos of the Cast Desert. I think people, fans in France, had never seen a, a place like this so imposing and caricaturists like René Pelos, the famous tour one, painting it as kind of a witch's hat, uh, the famous Castezert, which is 2K from the top. So that's how the legend was really born. So it sounds like the perfect mountain with a great history, wonderful scenery, amazing hairpins, as you'll see in the, in the pictures, but it's falling out of favour. That's right. Um, the tour's only been there, I think, five times in the last 20 years. That's partly because of, for natural reasons, that the tour is always looking for new places, for new summits. It's got Wanderlust, and it wants to find the next Isoard, the next Alpe d'Huez, the iconic climb for the future. Partly it's politics. I think um, Brownson also hasn't hosted a stage finish as often as it used to, and that's that's a natural endpoint for the stage. And also, as I said, it's space. I mean space and my generation's attention span like because i've mentioned in the piece about 
uh, the most recent exploit, um, Andy Schleck's in 2011. But even when I came to remember it first off, I thought, ah, yes, Schleck on the Galibier. Well, no, he, like the climb that launched that great solo was the Isawad, and he attacked uh, in a really canny steep place, 6K from the top. So it was good to revisit that. So does it tell us something about the way in which the course of the Tour de France is changing? It's more the riders and the fact that perhaps in the last 50 years, the field, uh, the quality pool has narrowed so much and the tactics and gains are, are so minute that they are waiting later and later to make that final move. Cyclocross and uh, Lars van der Haar, he does sound like a, a throwback. I mean, I love the way he had, he, he had, you describe the way he attacks these races from the very beginning, which reminds me of um, the way Chris Boardman used to race road races. Because well, he wasn't happy being in a bunch. No, just go off the front. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Catch me if you can. I mean, it's great that people are doing that. Yeah, I suppose, you know, in cyclocross is a slightly um, different kettle of fish in so much as there's no there's no huge advantage in, in being in a bunch, but there still is, you know. If yeah, I was going to ask you If you're in a chase... Well, if, if you did mention that the bunch reels them in, which suggests yeah, to me be, that well, there is some there's, sort of advantage. There's never a bunch, basically. Once, after, once the first lap's over and everyone's settled down, you'll have little groups. Mm. But if you're in a group of five or six guys, you're in a better situation than being out on your own. Why is that? And you just... Isn't it more, so, aren't you more likely to get caught up in a... A, a crash or something like you that. You are, but they really, they really very rarely crash. Um, yeah. I guess it, it, there, there is a certain amount of drafting going on. There's no two ways about it. You know, they, they're not hanging about when they're on when they're on the tarmac and when it's dry, they are shifting, and you're going to be better off sitting on somebody's wheel mm. than, than out on your own. Um, and you know, I kind of sort of say in the piece that, that that Lars just 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 blats out and turns the whole thing upside down and doesn't doesn't care what what goes on behind him and he doesn't always do that if i'm if i'm brutally honest about it but when he does it the guys behind just can't seem to cope with it it's just like well who's going to chase him no you chase him you know and and uh and sometimes it's just bye bye last i never see him again i mean it's, it's an interesting thing about cyclocross for a sport that does seem to have so many potential random variables with all the mud with all the obstacles you know you'd think chance could play a large role but it's the same people, yeah. The same small group of riders who do well every time, almost yeah. in the big races, yeah. isn't it? Why is that? Uh, because they are supremely skilled, and and that's that as much as anything is what I what I love about it is just just watching the, their skills and uh, every everything they do is just honed to perfection. And you, you see, you see Van der Haar dismounting getting up some steps remounting and it's just one swift beautiful smooth action and uh, you you know you try doing that at home and it's it's actually <coughs> really not easy and uh, not in the least bit comfortable I mean, but uh, there's a little bit um where i got simon burney to talk about lars in there and he says well you see someone someone like sven nice and and uh he can win over 20 races in one season which if you think about it is quite incredible because he doesn't make those mistakes that other people do he kind of makes his own luck because you know everything is absolutely spot on although interestingly I I, I kind of said to Simon that um, seemed to have seen Sven drop his chain more than anybody else in the last couple of seasons but that's because the chain the, the camera's always on him 
It's not to say that other people aren't dropping their chains as well. It's because Sven's right at the head of the race. And if he isn't at the head of the race, then the camera's going to be back looking for him to, to ask why he's not. Yeah. Um, but you now you've got somebody who's actually capable of uh, challenging him. Of course, Stibar can as well, but he doesn't, um, doesn't always ride cross these days. That does seem to be a problem for the sport in the sense that people graduate um, to, to road road racing full-time well it is to an extent in so much as you've got two you know fairly recent world champions Steve Barr and Lars Boom uh boom boom maybe um who have chosen to go to road careers probably because it pays better I'm not totally sure about that but I'm, I, I imagine that's the case which is a shame um but thankfully Lars said he hates it so he'll be staying with us on the dark side <laughs> so it's a great shame that we don't have Robert Miller here with us. Um, I think he was unavailable for the podcast, but he did write a column in which he he describes his own experience, his own one and only experience in a cyclocross race, and makes the case for why he didn't like it. But I also think he makes the case for why it's a ridiculous sport. He basically says that why don't you just have mountain bike racing because it's just that's a lot better. Yeah, well, Would, how how do you evaluate the two? Um, side by side mountain man, bike racing mountain bike, if, if you're talking about cross country mountain bike racing to my mind is nowhere near as exciting because it's it's much longer well the they, courses are yeah longer. I mean not only to ride but to spectate they disappear off into the woods for ages they're not going particularly far when they're grinding up little climbs on their granny rings it's it's not great TV cyclocross is fast it's furious it's, it's, there's always something going on you know. But it does look to me as though they are riding the wrong type of bicycle in, for those conditions. That just, that's my instinct. What would you put them on? Well, some sort of mountain bike and maybe make the obstacles even more exciting and exaggerated. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, no, I'd like actually, to see them have some more air. I mean, that, I did pick that picture where Lars is getting a bit of air, but I'd like to see a lot of air, a lot more air. Right, yeah. So I, sort of, I, you'd like to take it back to the 1950s when you were allowed to go through streams and you know, they used to put, they used to put um, you know, the hurdles that you get in, mm. in steeplechase. Yeah. Yeah, they used to put those in. So yeah. it's things you'd basically have to crawl Because it does over. seem as though the, the, the courses have been tamed for a bike that is not appropriate for a cross, essentially cross-country pursuit, which seems to be a whole nest of compromises. They, the course has been tamed in order to make the racing faster and more exciting, and it's mm. and it's now reached a. I mean, when I say tamed, you, if you tried riding around a course like like um, uh, Koppenberg, for example, which is absolutely extraordinary, um, the, the descent is just uh, it's so steep. Um, that's when you appreciate the skills that these guys and girls have got. You know that they can get down that and stay upright. Because it, it's nuts, the idea of going down a bicycle on that. Um, and so, so there's a whole variety of courses. That, that, that is another great thing about it. There are some courses that are a bit, a bit dull, a bit flat, whatever, so it's a really fast race. But there are some that are absolutely nuts. Mm. Um, you know, Coxide, obviously, is the, in the sand dunes is another famous one. Yeah. But there's plenty of others. The, 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 the one, um, the World Cup in Valkenburg that they do, that was a really tasty course. Ian, I remember you telling me this on, on, on the bike show. You think that it's a really good sport to start as, as, as a competitive cyclist. If you've, if, you've, if you've not done any competitive cycling, cyclocross is a good place to start. What, rehearse those arguments again. 
because it it's it will teach you bike skills that you will never get just by riding a bike on a road uh it will give you confidence on your bike um for kids it's the best absolutely best you so they can spend you know three or four years smashing around in the mud and acquiring those skills before they even go out on the road uh, so that's a good plus point for for from a parent's point of view so in a road race for example if you're not fit how long are you going to last in a bunch and basically you've never ridden a bunch you're not quite up to it you might you, you've been out riding on your own you think yeah okay i'm up to it I've, I've registered this average speed on my computer therefore i can you get in a bunch situation you're out at the back after half a lap race over yeah where are you going to go from there once you're dropped you're out of it in a cross race don't matter how good you are how bad you are there's a race going on every single position even if it's for last place you're going to be racing and that's just that's the beauty of it you know and you you'll, you'll come across the line at the end and everybody's standing there talking about what went on in the race with a big grin on their face they're not they're not skulking off to the dressing room be looking miserable i'm not saying road races are all like that but you know what i'm saying the only downside <laughs> is that is, is the i mean to wash the bikes afterwards frankly what's, what's your problem there's a great feature in in the magazine about condor cycles which is a um, famous london bike shop um, and mark of bikes and it, it's a, a matter of some regret that that i've spent how many years 33 years as a London cyclist and never owned a Condor and now I'm not a London cyclist so that time is gone and I didn't do it so um, that's a that's a some sadness for me there with Condor but yeah Condor a well-known uh, landmark in um, in the world of cycling in in, in London and, and in and in Britain at large and instead of us talking about um, the memorabilia I went over to uh, talk with Grant Young, who's the son of Monty Young, who started. And I asked him to uh, tell us a little bit more about the history of the shop. My father, Monty, started this very small business in Grazing Road at number 90 in 1948. It seemed like a huge shop, but it was a tiny shop. But it was amazing what work went out of there and in this almost like a dungeon underneath where... Every wheel and every bike was built uh, and lifted up the stairs by hand and out the front door. He loved cycling. It was his hobby. It was his sport. And, uh, and it was just something he wanted to, to go into. I mean, it was, it was a tiny, tiny little industry then. Um, but he wanted to produce the best he possibly could in, in handmade bicycles, frames, wheels and everything about it. So he, he opened in Grazing Road at number 90 in 1948. Because there was quite a boom, wasn't there, um, in the post-war era? There were, because people had a, you know, a bit more <laughs> leisure time, a bit of money, and there were a lot of frame builders who come back from the war um, and suddenly had access to materials to, 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 to build frames with. Well, England had hundreds and hundreds on you know on every every street there was a frame builder so there was from you know south to north there was great great frame builders lots of just one man bands there was nothing huge going on but you know in every region people identified themselves you know if it was up in the midlands or if it was northeast or there was always a frame builder and most of the surrounding areas people club people used to use that particular frame builder and so what was condor known for what was the what would people think about what were the values that people associated with condor with in those days i think the early in the early days there was 
probably what what made Condor famous was the, the was the hand cut lug frames. Though there were other frame builders that had their own designs, Condor's lug designs were unique to them. And I can remember, and still people say that they used to look in the shop window and just draw over the colours, um, the flamboyancy, the the modern looks of it, even for the likes of Lord Alan Sugar. Yeah, at the time when he couldn't even afford a condor, always wanted one. So it was always something a bit special. Yeah, always, always very, very high-end, high quality. And so you, what are your earliest memories of... Um, did you grow up sort of in the bike shop half the time? Ever since I can remember, from a, from a kid, after school every day, every Saturday, I just loved being there and... Um, I left school at a really young, young age and went into the business, which um, was a tough business. And, you know, my mother really didn't want me to go into it because it was, it barely gave, a, it, 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 well, it wasn't a business that you would go in to make money, let's say. You went into it because you loved it. It was a passion. It was a sport. It was a hobby. And I think that's really what, what I went into it for as well. Well, we get a bit of a flavour of um, those days in the uh, in the pictures in the magazine. Um, I'm going to start the op- the opening spread is um, a Condor jersey, looks like, looks like a training jersey. That purple, that is a that is a colour that I associate with Condor. Is that a, is that was that a team colour? Um, that purple. Why do I why do I why does that look right to me? Yeah, well, purple or mauve, whatever it was called, was was the original. Uh, was always the original colours of Condor um, from the early Condor Mackerson, which was uh, Whitbread Breweries when they sponsored the the pro team. Mauve and white or purple and white became synonymous to Condor, and it was used throughout the years. You know, it's it's come in and out of fashion. We've used we've used it. We brought it back to life, and and so on. And we've still we still try and use it in some way. Is there any particular reason why mauve was chosen? Sorry for calling it purple, by the way. No, it's fine, it's fine. Um, I can't actually remember why. I just think it was, it was quite a modern, vibrant colour in its, in its early days. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, um, and elsewhere, I mean, there's fantastic shots of, um, of your dad here in his uh, bodybuilding Days. That was a sort of fitness thing, wasn't it, in those days, sort of the Charles Atlas. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he loved, apart from cycling, he loved weightlifting um, and had, you know, he was very, very good at what he did and, and uh, you know, selected for, to, various, to go to various things and took it quite seriously and, and I think, you know, was, was a champion in his day. And he was particularly known for the wheels, that he built right yeah um i think out of everything that he was he was known all over the world and to this day i still get people if we if we're at a show i still get people coming up to me your dad made me some wheels 40 years ago 50 years ago they're still running true they're still running straight and he was a he was a master craftsman at at wheel building and so I'm um, looking through uh, through some of the uh, some of the pictures here. I mean, we've got his wheel building book, um, him at the uh, at the truing stand, and then the uh, the Rolling Stones connection. How did that How did that happen? The Rolling Stones road manager was at, is Alan Dunn, who was a 
who's been a lifelong friend of, of uh, my father and the family, um, really keen cyclist and still is. Um, and he got Mick Jagger and a few of the others involved in cycling, who they really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, there was a Condor bike made for Mick Jagger many, many years ago, which I believe he's still got and he won't part with. They were invited to various uh, events and to the six-day races at Wembley when they were there, and they just enjoyed being part of it. And so moving forward to today, what does Condor stand for today? Is it the same, same thing that it stood for back in the 1940s and 50s? Or how has the business evolved in terms of, obviously it's much bigger, um, you occupy a number of shops now on the Grayson Road, and it's much more spacious, it doesn't look like that kind of classic Aladdin's cave of the of the classic bike shop it's much you know it's a 21st century you know boutique if you like um but how, how do you make that bridge between all the stuff that we can see in the magazine from the past and and what there is now well i mean it's it's lovely to to have this his this 65 66 year old history that we've got but our our beliefs and the way we are and the way we treat people is exactly the same however big we are it will stay that way we, yes we have grown the brand the brand now has grown hugely I mean we have stockists all over the world selling Condor you know and lots of people say to us well why haven't you opened other shops and why haven't you expanded well we've expanded in in the sense of the Condor brand has expanded a lot but for us to to try and replicate what we've got here this the quality of what we've got here and the service we offer and you know the years of experience we just you couldn't do it in a second or third or fourth um, shop and it's not it's not for us and what do you see the big challenges of bicycle retailing going forward I mean clearly there's a challenge from online globalization challenge what what's what's sort of on the horizon and what are you what you're going to be doing here to uh, to meet those challenges there are challenges that we're faced with, and yes, online is, is one of them, um, and it's, it's very tough for independent companies. I think you've got to be a certain size to keep in the business now, definitely. But our old ethics are, are still there that we offer this fabulous service. People keep coming back. Every customer that goes out of here recommends someone else to come back. And as long as we keep doing what we do and not necessarily try to compete with you know the bigger mass producers but to do what we do as a handmade product I think our future is safe. I was talking with Grant Young of Condor Cycles and that brings us kind of to the end of the of the podcast doesn't it but for a competition. Yes indeed Jack do you want me to ask the question yeah. for the competition? Yeah what is the what is the prize let's get everyone's oh, the attention. The prize is uh, one of those nice sort of uh, Woolly winter hats, proper old school hats from Condor, and a couple of pairs of winter socks as well. Is this provided so by nice. Condor? Provided by Condor. Very nice of them. Thank you very much, Condor. Um, now, the question is Monty is a member of the Pickwick Bicycle Club. Yes. Every member of the Pickwick Bicycle Club has not a nickname, sobriquet, is that the correct word? I don't hear pronounce that word. Yeah. Anyway, they do. They, they, have a, they are allotted a character from. Uh, from Dickens. From Dickens. What is Monty Young's Dickens character? Now, you might have to do a little bit of searching on a Google engine for this. Don't, whatever you do, put in Pickwick Club like I did earlier uh, because 
that ends you up on a naturist site and it's not pretty I can assure you uh, Pickwick Bicycle Club or you could just flick through the uh, flick through the issue because I think the answer is somewhere in there is it? it? it is it is yeah, yeah. Oh, Come on. oh well what, what, you what, buy, you what do you do here what, you're the oh, editor no are you? no idea Oh, edit, of course, editors don't read their own magazines, do they? Well, better things to do. <laughs> and the email address to send your entries to is competitions at ruler.cc. Competitions at ruler.cc. And we do have a winner for the previous uh, issue 50, Paul Smith print, but we can't tell you who it is um, because Sam is not around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sam very, very carelessly went on holiday so uh, yeah anyway we'll have it soon we'll fill you in with that um information and the answer um in the next podcast which will be the podcast for issue 52 next year 2015 yeah yeah ian andy thank you very much for your time it's been a uh, pleasure as always cheers jack happy christmas thanks for downloading this edition of the ruler podcast you can read ruler magazine which comes out eight times a year By taking out a subscription, go to www.ruler.cc or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. If you've got an iPad, you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.